Open your Bibles to Matthew 18, please. This will be our primary text for the first part of the sermon. I have two parts. The second half, we will look at Corinthians chapter 5, the first uh, book. <clears throat> but um, before we get to Matthew 18, let me lay the foundation for what we are looking at. I started a few weeks back giving attention to the marks of a healthy church. And I know that preaching uh, topical sermons may not be the habit in this church. And for a season, while I'm going and adapting to my study um, processes, I am. you are going to go with me through that season while I am getting into the, a new routine. So just bear with me <clears throat> until things settle down. Thus far, we have seen the importance of sound doctrine, biblical leadership. And this morning, we continue to look at one more aspect of biblical membership. There's two parts to it, but it falls under the uh, major category of biblical membership. I mentioned last time that biblical churches are the antidote to the mushrooming state of the rise of false churches. And also, it is the salt that reduces, the church is the salt that reduces the putrefaction of immorality in the church and also in society. The church is to maintain a high standard. A standard that has been given and is expected by God. Whether it relates to morality, manhood, marriage, or making money, God has given us a standard. It is His standard that we need to aim for, not our own perspective, not society's perspective, but what God has delineated very clearly in His Word. Often, however, we look the other way when couples remove themselves from the fellowship of the saints. When families put up with, I'm talking about church families, put up with families within the community of faith who just don't show up. They don't care about the saints. We put up with those who pursue sinfulness and turn away from righteousness. We bear with those who demean marriage by pursuing divorce, dishonoring God in the process and hurting others. God has given us a high and holy standard and we as his people are obligated to keep it. Not because this church has a statement of faith or a biblical perspective of marriage. That is irrelevant. If God in his word has given us a standard, we have no choice in the matter. We do not, open into, we do not enter into open debate with God on the issue. We are only obligated to keep it. Church membership provides the guardrails of accountability. See, God has given church people, those who are born to a church, I'm not talking with, in terms of Catholicism, when you're born, again, you're born into the universal church. That relationship that you have with God is demonstrated to a local assembly. That believer I'm talking about. Church membership provides accountability for those believers who are in a church body. However, when we minimize the importance of biblical church membership, we also erode the protection of accountability. I think that makes sense, right? If you take away biblical membership, you take away an element that is crucial to your life and sanctification which is accountability. If you are not part of a biblical church, you are living your own life your own way. When a church does not desire to employ biblical membership and therefore discipline, it communicates that it does not care about its members. 
nor the one who has bought them. Healthy church membership and understanding it produces responsibility and duties that contributes to the healthy state of that church. However, a lack of commitment in churches and a lackluster response to church need is indicative of our understanding of what it means to be a member in a church. There are many people that go to church on a Sunday morning but have not committed to a local assembly. This is another sermon that you are going to be uncomfortable with. And I'm not comfortable preaching uncomfortable sermons, but if the sermon makes you uncomfortable because you are not faithful to God's commission, that is good for you. And I hope you walk away burdened in your heart and desiring even more so to honor the Lord because that matters before God. Who you are as a believer matters before your God. One element of the blessing of church membership is what we've seen last time, spiritual gifts. God has given you a spiritual gift and the, the presence of spiritual gifts presumes membership. You are not given a spiritual gift for yourself. You are given a gift so that you may benefit whom? Others. Other saints within a local body. Should be who, not whom. You are given all that you can do to benefit a local church. If you are not using your giftedness, then you are not investing in a local church. I know that is hard to hear. If you are not investing in a local church, then you are not contributing to the health of that local church church. Now as we develop this idea a little more, let me remind you that the giving of spiritual gifts presumes you are committed to a local assembly. I think too often we worry about what the gift is. And I get that that is difficult to determine. Um, I didn't know what my gifts were uh, I, when I was growing up. I feared speaking in front of people. I'm a very shy person, believe it or not. This was not on my list of wanting to do in a church community. Yet the Bible does not tell us to figure it out. What the Bible does give clear indication is love one another, serve one another, bear with one another, care for one another, be forbearing with one another, forgive one another, encourage one another, and seek fellowship with one another. Get this. If you employ, or sorry, if you apply those things, you are ex um, exercising a measure of giftedness. And in exercising those things, the area that God has given you or blessed you with or given you excess giftedness in becomes more prominent. But if you are not exercising those one another's, what's going to happen with the area of giftedness? You're not going to know. It's not going to become clear. So in order for you to get what, what the gift is, you need to employ or apply the area of one another's. I think it's simple. God has given us opportunity to serve in a variety of different ways. And in your serving, the gifts will become a little bit more clearer. And when you are Seeking to identify what those gifts are, God places people around you to affirm or deny those gifts. There may be some of you who think you have the gift of singing. No. I've, I've heard some of you, and um, I think it's best. When, when I was uh, in seminary, we had a choir master who said that not all of us have been gifted with um, the gift of singing, and some of you have been gifted with the gift of miming. You get that, right? Just mouth the words, but don't make a sound. 
that is sometimes good uh, for just the the ear levels um, and, and the grace given to others. Anyway, let's move on. First Corinthians chapter twelve. <clears throat> Showing a remind you of what we've seen. In fulfilling the one another's, you will employ the gifts that God has given you. Take note of how important gifts are to the body. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 7. To each is given. That is singularly given to each person. The manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. Now think about that. How does the Spirit manifest His presence in the local church? That He's actually working in the lives of His people. By giving gifts and then motivating those people who have the gifts to do what? To serve. To use those gifts. Now look at verse 24. Let me just uh, build the context by reading from the middle of verse 24. Three, the parts of the body, those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow the greater honor, <clears throat> and our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty, which our more presentable parts do not require. But, that's how we think, but God has so composed. The idea here of composed is compounded, to be put together, to be compacted together. God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it. That there would be no division. That is a purpose clause. God compacts the body together with all that it needs. Why? So that there would be no division. Gifts are given to a local church to drive out division. Take note of the contrast. But, verse 25, um, uh, sorry, the middle of 24. But God has so composed the members of the body. Now, why does God give these gifts? It is so that the church may be able to have the same care one toward another. In fact, that's what he says at the end of 25. That there may be no division, but that the members may have the same care for one another. Believers are responsible for each other. That presumes that you are part of a church that loves and cares equally for each other. How do we get there? How do we get to the caring part? Well, God has given the gifts, that's by means of the Spirit, composed those gifts, meaning compacted together, so that there's no separation. And when there's no separation, we care equally for one another. But let's work the other way. The reason we do not care equally for one another is because we are not employing the gifts that God has given in the church. Think about who Paul is writing to. Corinth, a church that used a variety of different gifts, right? Chapter 12 and, and uh, 13 deals a lot with that. Uh, through to 14 deals a lot with that. But they were using the gifts wrongly. What did that cause? Chapter 1. Divisions. So the improper use of gifts results in division. The proper use of gifts results in what? Eradicating division. What's the net result of that? Caring equally for one another. See, at the heart of the use of gifts is your personal interest in another believer. 
caring enough to share your life with that believer. The wrong use of gifts causes division, but the correct use of gifts drives out discrimination, disunity, and division. That is a healthy church. The only way we can get to a state of a healthy church is if we employ our gifts correctly. And that means doing the right thing for the right reason, that is with the right motive, for the right people. This doesn't mean that they are going to be perfect churches. It doesn't mean that those who are using the gifts are going to do it perfectly all the time and that there will be no divisions. We are sinners saved by God's grace. <clears throat> what Paul is after is that the proper use of gifts, implicit in that is the proper understanding of the use of gifts, is the one another's. One another's take our eyes off ourselves and places it on other saints. When this happens, you will not cause division in the church because your concern is for those whom you serve. A church that employs the one another's is a church that is properly growing in the grace of our Lord and in love with the saints. The proper use of spiritual gifts contributes to the maturity of a local church. This morning we continue along those lines of membership by focusing on the benefits and the results of church membership. There are two brief points that I want to cover, <laughs> brief in terms of my sermon, but uh, two brief points that cover this idea <clears throat> of the benefits of church membership. Number one, church membership, uh, sorry, church disciplines, discipline presumes and protects members. Still under the canopy of church membership. Number two, church purity presumes and protects members. It's very clear, very simple, and I think the Bible passages will make that absolutely clear. Both of these relate to the topic of a healthy church. Why am I teaching on healthy churches? In order for us to produce men that are able to plant healthy churches, we need by ourselves to have an understanding of what a healthy church looks like. Not only understanding it, but applying it. Church discipline presumes membership, but also protects members. When a church practices church discipline, you can go back to Matthew 18, it demonstrates that the person being disciplined is part of that community. But at the same time, it protects the members of that community, including that person that is being disciplined. Make sense? This comes down to how we understand Matthew chapter 18. <clears throat> Often the focus is only verse 15 through to verse 20, but there's a wider context that is in view. Look at chapter 18, verse 1. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus, saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And calling, him, uh, and calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them, said, Truly, I say to you, Unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Verse 4. Whoever humbles himself like this little child or this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. What is Jesus' point in the section? The greatest in the kingdom is the one who has concern for another. How do I get to that? Well, read on. Verse 5. Whoever receives such a child in my name receives me. 
But whoever causes one of these little ones, that is his disciples, who believes in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be thrown in the depths of the sea. It is better for you to die than to cause someone else to sin. Wow. What is Jesus saying? The one who is greatest is the one who humbles himself and doesn't set himself up as a standard. Who doesn't exalt himself and expects people to follow him. Why? Because you're a sinner and you will lead people astray. The greatest is the one who humbles himself and demonstrates that humility by caring enough for others that he doesn't cause them to sin. Now look at verse 7 to 9. Same thought, explained in a different way. Woe to the world for temptations to sin. For it is necessary that temptations come, but woe to the one by whom the, the temptation comes. You hear what Jesus is saying? Woe to the person that causes another person to fall into sin. In other words, deal with your own sin, but don't cause others to fall into your sin. Woe to the one through whom temptation comes. Don't be a stumbling block to others. Don't be the one that has a weakness and you drag others into that weakness because you publicly put it on display. This is my weakness. Now follow as I follow my weakness. Woe to those who cause others to sin. What is Jesus talking about? That is caring enough for others that you restrain yourself from sin and you don't mislead others to following you in your sin. That is so easily done today. Making a big, a quick buck. I know a guy. You know, if you're a college, you always know a guy. You can put your tires on for 200 rand total. You just have to give him a thousand rand in his pocket. I know a guy that can do your books for you. You just need to look the other way. Don't check it. Don't say anything. I know what to invest in. You know what people are buying at a great, large scale now? It's pot. Dacha, for those of you who don't speak English. It's a huge investment. Jesus says, be careful that you are not the cause of someone else stumbling. What is he talking about? The entire discussion centers on caring for others. Looking to yourself that you are not the reason. In fact, Jesus begins by saying, the greatest is the person who humbles himself, who doesn't think much of himself. Now look at verse 10 through to 14. See that you do not despise one of these little sheep. Still in the same context. For I tell you that in Heaven, the angels always see, the fa- uh, see my father's face who is in heaven. What do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the 99 on the mountain and go, go in search for the one that, is when, that, has, um, uh, went, that went astray? This is obvious, often used in the context of pastoral ministry, but that's not what Jesus is talking about. Remember, humility, uh, the first section, the greatest is the one who humbles. The second section is, don't cause others to sin. Care enough that you restrain yourself from sin and you don't cause others to stumble. Now, if you see somebody wandering, what does a shepherd do when he he sees one of his sheep wander? He goes after that one sheep. 
right? The 99, they flock together. They are by nature sheep flock. I'm going to get back to that point in the next sermon. They are protected by just being by themselves in a, in a, in a measure. They, they're still exposed, but they are better together than by themselves. A single wandering sheep is dangerous. He is in danger. And that's the point. Notice what he says. Um, does he not leave the 99 on the mountain and go in search of that one that went astray? The answer is yes, he does. And if he finds it truly, I say to you, he rejoices over it more than the 99 that never went astray. Care enough to go after those who are wandering. Again, the eyes of Jesus, or at least Jesus is taking the eyes of the, the hearers off themselves and onto the other. So it will... So it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. He cares enough that he sends his son to collect his sheep. Now, the section that is often considered, uh, somebody said to me this morning when I took his pen without asking that he's going to Matthew 18 me. <laughs> this is what he's talking about. 15 through to 20. The illustration of the shepherd and sheep analogy is this. Care for the little ones. Care for the wandering sheep. How do we care for the wandering sheep? Matthew 18, 15. If your brother sins against you, Go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have won over, restored, gained your brother. How do you care for the wandering sheep? Listen again. If your brother sins against you, go. Go after him. That's an expression of love and concern. Go and tell him he's wandering. And if he listens to you, if he gets what you are saying, you have won him back to the fold. The entire discussion is sacrifice for the sake of that one. Humble yourselves enough that you love that one to go after him that has sinned. In other words, sheep are not supposed to be isolated. Get it? Sheep are never supposed to be alone. The entire context of Matthew 18 sets up this analogy. Do not let them go, whether it's by um, causing them to sin, whether it's by exalting yourself, or whether it's by allowing them to wander. Do not let them go. The analogy of a flock, the analogy of sheep together gives you the understanding that sheep belong what? Together. Never alone. Jesus is making the point that those in his kingdom must be drastically different to the world and those who are bound to a measure of religiosity. They are not saved, they just look Christian. They care because it benefits themselves. They don't go after those who have sinned against them. They want to be gone after. You know what I mean by that, right? I know it's bad grammar. We need to go out of our way to seek the wandering sheep. To care enough to love them back to the fold. That is kingdom ethic. And this will come back in the next um, section. That is what kingdom ethic looks like. God has a kingdom and we, his church, are part of that kingdom. We are kingdom citizens, not yet in the kingdom, but living as if we are his kingdom citizens, which we are. How does this relate to membership? 
the practice of church discipline, which is Matthew 18, 15 through to um, 20, is an area where the saints demonstrate unmistakable love and concern for a sinning brother. This falls under the duty of the members of the church. It is interesting that it is the brother who sinned against that goes after the brother that sinned against him. It is this brother who takes witnesses along to say, please, I have a concern for this brother or sister of mine. They are not repenting of the sin. They, the witnesses and the brother, go to the church and say to the church, we have a concern. This brother is not repenting. It is then the church that says, yeah, we need to go after him. And if he still does not repent, we treat him as a sinner. Notice that the elders of the church is not involved in this process. Now, by implication, probably taking it to the church means that it's brought to the elders and they make it known to the church. But it is not the elders who excommunicate a member. Who excommunicates a sinning brother, unrepented sinning brother? It is the church. Why? Because the mentality of the flock is still in view. You are either brought back to the fold or you excommunicated from the fold. Look at verse 17. If he refuses to listen to them, that is the witnesses and the brother who has been sinned against, tell it to the church. And when the church, now this is not in the text, but once the church has gone after him and sees that he doesn't want to repent, and if he refuses to listen even to the church, which is what I've just explained, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. From a Jewish perspective, those are people that you rejected and you did not associate with. So don't associate with him any longer. If you want to wander and he does not want to repent from his sin, what do you do? You cut him off. Wow. That is hard. But this is a loving act, not only to the sinning brother, but also to the sheep that remain. It is an act that protects the flock from the sinfulness of that individual because his sin will affect the flock. And also, it's an act of love to him as you pursue him in love to restore him to the community. This chapter, chapter 18, presumes belonging to the flock. The analogy of sheep means that you are part of the flock. Remember what Jesus Jesus says, is that it's one that is removed from the 99. That is one flock. So then the act of sinning is against that brother who is part of a flock. This is a church community context. So the goal then of church discipline is actually church restoration. The goal is to win him back, not to get rid of him. Now there is a case where you do get rid of a person, and I'll point that out to you in a moment's time. So how does this relate to our topic of church membership? Here's the point. Some churches may not have a formal process of church membership, but if you apply church discipline, what do you also acknowledge? Church membership. You cannot have church discipline without acknowledging that that one sheep was wandering is part of the fold. Okay, now let me expand that wider. What if you are not part of the fold? What if you do not belong to the fold? What you have separated yourself from, what you have removed yourself from, is the accountability and the love of the saints to draw you back when you are sinning. Do you see how church discipline is both accountability and protection? God has given us all that we need for life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us. 
by his own glory to himself to be part of his church. You are not called to live for yourself. Did Jesus not say, Peter wrote it, but did Jesus not say that you do not belong to yourself, but you were bought with a what? Precious price. If you've been bought, you are owned. You belong to the church, not to this church, to the church universal, because that is um, the, the ownership of Christ. But that belonging must be demonstrated to a local body. You can also not expect visitors to submit to church, uh, to church discipline, to Matthew 18. I mean, that makes logical sense, right? If you don't belong to a church, they are not going to pursue you in love. If you do not belong to a local assembly, there is no obligation of that community of faith to exercise their love towards you. This is kingdom ethic that Jesus explains. It is a sense of belonging. It's a sense of community. It's a sense of unity that he has established by himself. When a believer does not commit to a local church and when we do not know him, we generally do not associate with him, yet the whole idea of the body of the local body is to show our identification with Jesus Christ and his bride. Isn't that what baptism demonstrates? That you have died to yourself and you've been raised in Christ and you identify with both who he is and his body. Isn't that what breaking of bread demonstrates? That you are partaking as a body of the, um, the, the emblems looking forward as a local assembly to the promise of his return. You demonstrate both by means of baptism and breaking of bread that you are part of a local assembly that is under the, under the accountability of that local assembly. You cannot have church discipline without accepting responsibility over the person that is being disciplined. It's, I think, very Simple. Think about it this way. When a person is being pursued to be restored, what is he being restored to? Firstly, to the brother that he sinned against. And secondly, if the analogy holds true, he's a wandering sheep. So he's being restored to the fold. The sinning brother is pursued out of love and sincere care by the one who is being sinned against. That brings us back to Jesus' comment of humility. This is what biblical love looks like in a Christian community. You lessen yourself and you care enough to go after the one who has offended you. And you suppress that emotion and that, that desire to seek justice and you love him enough to forgive him the sin that he has committed against you. That is accountability expressed in love. But when a believer removes himself from a, from a community of saints, they remove themselves both from love and accountability and the protection of the local church. What we often don't think about is the protection that this accountability provides to the sinning brother. In pursuing him, you are seeking to save himself from the effects of the sin, from the sin itself, and then from himself. Woe to him who causes another to stumble or to be tempted. You are seeking to bring him back to the fold. This is humility that expresses itself in love and a mutual care of the saints equally. 
almost exactly the same as what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. We care enough equally that when we are sinned against, we will go out of our way to go and find that brother. But a church that ignores this vital function of church discipline is courting compromise. You're putting up with sin. That is a church that is more concerned about how people feel and what people think than what God desires. What's the purpose of church discipline? There are four purposes. Number one, to maintain the reputation and integrity and purity of the local church. We will look at that a little bit more in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, but it is to protect the reputation of the local church. Number two, to help disciple and restore an erring brother. You can write down 2 Corinthians chapter 2 verse 5 and 2 Thessalonians chapter 3 verse 14 to 15. I wrote, uh, I think I removed it. It's giving him the cold hand of fellowship. When he doesn't want to repent or return to the flock, you cut him off. Um, number three, it's to cause other Christians not to sin. Now, look at this one. It's 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 20. Now, the context here is um, actually elders. You can see that from verse 17. Let the elders who do well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. Uh, and then he gives the explanation for why apostles need to be paid. In verse 19, do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. Verse 20, as for those who persist in sin, so those, which is the elders, which are the elders, rebuke them in the presence of all so that the rest may stand in fear. So an elder, when he sins, his sin becomes public. And that sin becomes, uh, is supposed to be made known before all. He is rebuked before everybody. Why? Because he's got a public position. His private sins become made public so that you, the rest, do not sin. So that they may fear is what it says. God has a high accountability for elders, for those who are active in the position of teaching and preaching. And so the same practice is employed. If a pastor is the wandering sheep, what should the flock do? Go after him. That's a problem, by the way, if, if the pastor is the, the wandering sheep. Church discipline. Lastly, uh, sorry, got one more. Another purpose is to love them to repentance, which is what we looked at in Matthew 18, 15 through to 20. It is to love them to repentance. Church discipline shows that we take God's word seriously. When we don't, we start to meddle with possibilities. We start to think, what can I do? If they haven't found out about this, what else can I do? Because we fail to understand this vital process of church life, many churches find rampant sin amongst the congregants. Many believers are not loved back to repentance. Because we fear following this process. Now Matthew 18 is absolutely clear as to what we should do. If you are sinned against, you seek him out. It's that simple. Now, I mean, there, there are so many permeations of how people interpret it. When, I think it was, um, 
one of my hermeneutic professors says, said, when, when the text is absolutely clear, please don't, go be look, please don't go look for another meaning. If it's absolutely clear, there is nothing else to look for. Just read what it says and do what it requires. Now, as my former mentor used to say, let me start to meddle. You may say, you don't know me. I pray every day. I, I read my Bible every day. I, I, don't, I don't need church life. I've got a relationship with the Lord. Me personally. Okay. Well, if you're reading your Bible and praying every day, you should be the first to commit to a local church. Why? Because that's what the Bible encourages saints to do. You cannot have devotion to Christ apart from having devotion to or in the bride. I'm not Catholic. I don't believe that being in church is going to save you. But loving Christ is expressed in loving God's people, right? Isn't that what Jesus says in the upper room? The world will know that you are my disciples. How? If you have love one toward another. How then can you say, I love Jesus, but you do not love the church? I question you. If you belong to Christ, then you belong to the universal church, which means you should belong to a local church. Accountability and protection is best seen in the fact that church discipline expects that we will not let the sinning brother in our community of faith, we will not let him or her go. So let me encourage you with this. If believers love this sin more than they love the saints, go after them. If they love their beds more on the cold winter mornings, go after them. Remind them of the sacrifice of Christ. Sacrifice is not doing the easy thing. You're not making a sacrifice to come to church. Why? Because it's a duty. You're not making a sacrifice to go to work, right? Because work is a duty. Okay, you get paid for work, so that kind of helps. But there is the reward in being faithful to God. If saints love money more than they love fellowship, go after them. If they love comfort more than they love the Lord, go after them. Don't be satisfied with the excuses that I am too busy. My um, Hebrew professor said to somebody that made that claim, but, but I'm too busy. I can't do this paper. I'm too busy. And he said, well, I pastor church. I teach um, seminary. I grade papers. I preach. I teach. I have to drive almost two hours every day because he had to go every day to school. I had to drive maybe three times a week. And uh, I'm still listening for your excuse. Yeah. Busyness is not an excuse for absence. It's never an excuse for neglecting the fellowship of the saints. Church is supposed to provide accountability. And when we don't hold one another accountable, we are failing our expression of love towards one another. Church membership means that we who are part of the, uh, a local church, we are part of the body of Christ, know those who belong to us and we care for them deeply, sincerely, and we extend ourselves to the degree that we want them to be restored to fellowship. Let me give you a biblical illustration of how interchurch relationships look like. Acts chapter 2. 
what it means to be part of a local church. We get back to this in a later sermon, but for now, take note in verse 42, he says, they, this is the 3,000 that got saved and were baptized in verse 41, devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, and to the breaking of bread and the prayers. They are demonstrating devotion. They are demonstrating a commitment to Christ and to the saints. That is where fellowship comes in. And all came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles, and all who believed were together and had all things in common. Take note of that. They did not just believe um, uh, the same things, but they were together. They were inseparable. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and uh, distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in uh, their homes, and they received their food, that is, they were having meals together with glad and generous hearts, praising God and, were, and having favor with all people. And the Lord added to the number, day by day, those who were being saved. The church cared for one another. And you see the expression of this in chapter 5, uh, in chapter 6, where there's a problem. It starts in chapter 5, where one of the saints gives uh, an abundant gift by selling the land and giving the resources uh, to the church so that others could be helped. Why? Because he's thinking of others. That is what it means to be part of a local church. And then Ananias and Sapphira concoct this idea, ah, you know what? We want to be recognized as well. And so let's sell our property, but tell them this is how much it actually co- um, we, we actually got for it. And so they come to Peter one by one and say to Peter, you know what? We also have something to give. And here you go. And Peter says, what's this? Why, why are you trying to look good? Why are you trying to exalt yourself? That is not humility, right? That is the opposite of what happens in, the, in chapter 18 of Matthew. And he gives him an opportunity to repent. And what does he do? He does not repent. So what happens? Peter says, sorry, bud. I gave you opportunity. Bam, you're dead. Now, fortunately, that doesn't happen in living hope. But the same thing happens with his wife. She comes in and he gives her opportunity. Is that really how much you got? And she's like, ah, know what my husband said. I just go with what he says. Opportunity to repent, did not repent. What happens to her? She dies on the spot. What is the signal that God gives at that point? My church is a holy communion. Is a holy community. Not communion, community. Church must have an understanding of accountability. They were called out for their sin. Think about this. The level of accountability that is expected in the book of Acts, and you will see later as well, is the same thing that we apply in our family. For instance, a father cannot walk from his house to a neighbor's house and say, I want you to clean the front yard and the backyard by the time I get home tomorrow. Why can't you do that? Because he's got no jurisdiction there, right? They're not his flock. Nor can the members of that neighbor's house come to their house and say, I want turkey every night for six weeks in a row. They can't do that. Now, nobody's going to want turkey for six weeks in a row because it's it's turkey. I mean, (laughs) not a lot of people eat that. We know that this is true in the natural life. Why then do we have a different perspective when it comes to church? So I can go from this church to that church to that church and serve a little here, attend a little there, and love a little there. Hmm. I come to this church and I give my opinion when it's opportunity to give. I go to that church and I suddenly vote with that church. 
How is it that you apply a different hermeneutic when it comes to your own family life when, than when it comes to the church of Jesus Christ? Why? Because we think it's a spiritual entity. We need to have a spiritual understanding when it comes to church. No. The local church is a local assembly that has local jurisdiction. Every member in that church is under the shepherding care of those pastors. Every member of that church. Now we have a slightly nuanced understanding of membership. If you are practicing, sorry, if you are serving in the church, we already view you as a member and affirm that membership later on. Most churches have membership um, where they take in members, uh, we, we have a different take on that. But think about this. What if you are a perpetual visitor? Can you vote in that church? Can you lovingly serve and call a brother in that church to repentance? Do you have to follow the instruction of the pastors of that church? The answer is no. Now the opposite is true as well. The shepherds do not have shepherding care over you as a perpetual visitor. The church has no jurisdiction to pursue you as a perpetual visitor. If you do not commit to a local assembly, you do not love that church community enough to say, I throw my full weight behind you and I love you enough to say that I want to be under your accountability and under your protection. Church membership matters. Why? Because God has given it as a gift of both accountability and protection to his people. So firstly, Church discipline presumes church membership and it also prote protects church members. So, my time is up. I told my wife I'm not going to finish. I'm going to mention the second point and then, as usual, I'll come back to it next week. Church purity presumes membership and also protects members. The church community cannot look away from immoral sin. We cannot turn a blind eye to things which God clearly instructs us not to do. 1 Corinthians chapter 5. So often, people will make emotional arguments when it comes to clear instruction. For instance, let me give you an illustration. The government says, do not spank your child. It is a a crime if you are found to spank your child. Who are you going to listen to? Do you obey the government in that? Well, if you do, let me say it this way. Then you have elevated the government's command above the Lord's decree. More so, you have elevated yourself as the arbitrator of what is right between the two. You have placed yourself in the position of God. The only one who has the right to make a decree whether something is right or wrong is God. So he's given a command. Do not spare the rod. You have determined that the government's decree is better than God's decree. So where have you placed yourself? In the position of God. I don't want to be you if that's you. You have elevated your position and conviction above God's word and also God. This, the same applies to marriage. God says one man, one woman for life. Until death you do part is what we say, right? The same truth applies to the standard of marriage. Regardless of what society, there are some cultures that allow for polygamy so what the standard is not set by society the standard is given by god in the garden and if we honor god we will hold to that standard regardless of what society does 
Culture will always pervert the standard, but the standard comes from God. And so we submit to that. I know that this is a a sensitive topic. Okay, I'll end on this. I know that this is a sensitive topic because there are difficult circumstances when it comes to marriage. There are horrendous situations when it comes to marriage, remarriage, and divorce. And and I don't think anybody's ever um, settled on this issue. But the question is, are there clear passages with regards to marriage, divorce, and remarriage? The answer is yes. So what should we follow? Not every potential nuance, but every command that is absolutely clear. Follow that. So, why does it matter what we view, what we believe about the children? Or, well, because God has clearly instructed us how we should treasure our responsibility of nurturing our kids. Then, secondly, because marriage is a beautiful symbol that is traceable to the union of Christ and the church. It's a symbol that points to that. It is gospel in um, focus. It points to the fact that God has a very high view of marriage and we should never pervert that. Why? Because it demonstrates that Christ loved the bride so much that he died for his one singular bride. So regardless of what the government says, regardless of what the country allows, regardless of what culture does, we follow God's clear principles on marriage. Now, 1 Corinthians chapter one, chapter 5, verse 1. Take note what Paul says. He provides correction on immorality. I'm going to read it, and then if you want to know more, come back next week and we'll learn more about how Paul corrects the Corinthians. It is actually reported that there are sexual there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among the pagans. For a man has his father's wife, and you are arrogant. Ought you not to rather mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. What's the point? In order for him to be removed, he has to what? Belong. Make sense? Church, the church's pursuit of purity, in maintaining purity, implies that church discipline presumes church membership. Without you belonging to a church, this cannot happen. We have no right to pursue you when you are living an immoral life if you do not belong to this local church. Now, if you're going to be coming for a long period of time and you start to serve without having committed to um, church membership, we are going to view you as a member and we will come after you, whether you like it or not. The lesson in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 is this. When we toy with culture, culture will win. When you meddle with that which is not from God, and you weigh up, can I, can I not? No, it's not really that sinful. Well, clearly this is sinful because Paul says, kick him out, remove him. Culture will win. Cultural elements can become tradition. Tradition can become law. And law will become legalism. Either way, there is no win when we bow to culture. We don't get the best of both worlds. We're not talking about culture. When I'm saying culture, I'm, I don't, um, I'm not talking about certain cultural traditions, such as when a colored gets married, he gets married out of the house. It's a good tradition. It's, but it's, 
It's when it's a law and it becomes a sin because you don't get married out of the house. Then you've transgressed and you've made it a law which God has not made a law. I'm talking about the spirit of the age that controls a manner of life that influences our morality. That culture, if we bow to it, then we lose moral ground and moral direction in the church of Jesus Christ. That's a sign for me to end. So let me pray. Father, we are thankful to you for such great kindness in providing the blessing of a local church. We don't always realize what we have in the gift of the church, in the protection of the church, in the accountability that comes with church life. And some of us just blatantly ignore it. We pray, Father, that you would bring conviction where conviction is required. We pray that you would minister to those who um, are not sure about what they need to commit to and why it is necessary. We pray that we as a community of faith would commit to one another and have the same care for each one. Help us not to play... Um, favorites in the body of Christ. Help us not to favor one person over another, but help us to share the same kind of concern and love for each and every single person who is part of this community. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for your word. And we pray that you would use it to honor yourself and to change our lives for your glory. So we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.